and like uh, with the whole like um, okay. imposter syndrome. Yeah, no, like imposter syndrome in my life. Like imposter syndrome in my life. <laughs> this is my like, life. Hey guys, we forgot to record an intro this week. Today we have Simran on. She is a medical assistant from Bakersfield, California. And we get into all about my transition from the veterinary field to pre-med. We talk about imposter syndrome. We talk about medical disparities here in the Central Valley. And we talk all about letting your friends see the ugly parts of your life. So let's get into it. I'd love to hear how you transition from being pre-vet and kind of thinking about switching over to pre-med. Yeah, so I was pre-vet and I think on paper I was probably like the perfect pre-vet. <laughs> I had done everything to prepare myself and just was not unprepared for the application process, but I think at that point I had just gotten really discouraged. Um, I had started working after graduating full-time at a vet clinic and I'd worked part-time before, but never full-time. And I just started realizing that the lifestyle that the career would take me into was just not for me. For one, I just felt like I could never, I was never practicing medicine. And as someone who really loves medicine. I think that the veterinary field is extremely limiting because, you know, you get to the point where you start actually practicing medicine. And usually that's the point where people can no longer afford the treatment or are no longer willing to put in that kind of effort to take care of their pets. And I think that that was another thing that just really discouraged me was just being in a career where 90% of the conversations that I felt like I was having were about how people didn't want to pay for the services. People thought it was too expensive. And so there's that kind of resentment from clients. But at the same time, vets don't make a crazy amount of money. You make a good living, but I don't think that it's enough to justify paying two to three hundred thousand dollars to go to vet school and I just felt like that was also going to be really limiting to me especially as somebody who wants to do a lot of overseas work and has a lot of family overseas I just didn't want to be tied down by like that amount of debt um because I just didn't feel like it would allow me to accomplish the things that I wanted to accomplish um when it came to like nonprofit work and stuff like that and overall, like I was just getting super discouraged, especially by the whole application process where you have these schools that only care about your GPA and they take students who maybe don't have great clinical skills or don't have great personalities or aren't great handling animals, but they can take a test well or they have a 4.0. And so after all of that, I just decided that I would rather pursue medicine where I wasn't constantly going to have to keep validating myself and like the prices to people. I know that med medicine has its own like financial issues, but I don't think that you have to explain pricing to people nonstop and validate the work that you're doing. And also I, I, could see a light at the end of the tunnel when it came to like debt and medicine, like you can pay it off. And so I also am excited about the opportunity to actually practice medicine and not have to put down a dog every time that something is a little bit more involved. So, you know, I think you brought up some really good points, how, um, 
in order for a school to be deemed a competitive or number one school, they only take 4.0 students and they ignore all these other qualities that make someone great, right? So, for example, I see at my hospital, we have uh, residents who come in uh, from many different schools, and there's some UCLA grads, there's um, some from the school in Fresno, there's some from UC Davis, there's like people from all over, right? And you can tell almost instantly, like who has that bedtime manner and who doesn't. And a lot of the times the people, you can have good bedtime manner and be book smart, most definitely. But the fact that so much emphasis is placed on how well you're able to take a test, I think is so ridiculous because that doesn't say anything for how you're able to take care of someone, how you're able to comfort someone when they're vulnerable, especially in medicine, right? Um, Or how they're able to go about a logical process and run through an algorithm in order to come to a diagnosis. Like test taking does not give you those skills. Yeah, you might memorize it, but is that really long term knowledge? And is that really going to benefit you? Um, I think those are really important, like statistics that we need to start like incorporating. Um, We need to start accepting as, you know, um, better indicators of success in some people. So I feel like relying GPA and MCAT, great. Like, I completely agree. You do need to have the self-discipline in order to do well. But there's sometimes there's situations that are out of your control and there's so much you can do, right? Yeah. I think, like, with everything that we said, like, with it being, like, challenging for, like, um, like with the GPA and we having to have such a high GPA and stuff for like there, in some cases, like we, what we said, like even medical schools um, have these high cutoffs. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately, like where we'll end up, it will be meant to be, you know, yeah. like, well, I think all of everyone in the cohort is definitely going to get a medical school. Just meeting you guys. And- OK, let's fight because, OK, I want to I want to hear what Simran has to say. Last week, you said that everyone can be a doctor do you agree that's such a hard question <laughs> it's really i say on the no spot. because this isn't ratatouille ratatouille oh <laughs> not everyone can be everyone can be a chef but not everyone can be a doctor i don't know if everyone can be a chef either <laughs> I, think- I think you need the right kind you need a motivation right You need a motivation to help people. I mean, sure, there are doctors who don't care about the patients that they're treating. Like, I see that all the time. You need a motivation to help people, but you also need to be smart. You need to be... Because you can't just be a good person. I feel like smart is so arbitrary. I feel like... I don't know. I feel like you can be hardworking and portray yourself as smart. But I don't know, like... I don't consider myself smart. I consider myself hardworking, right? Mm. I have friends who will study like half the time as much as I do and still do well on tests. Mm. I consider that smart, right? But like, I don't feel like you have to have this innate ability within you in order to be a doctor. I think it's something that you work on and you build on. It takes a lot of discipline, right? So you figure out like, okay, like maybe it takes me more time to learn this material than other people. So what am I going to do to make sure that I'm on the same level playing field, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. But it's not everyone that's going to like. Yeah, but I mean, again, it goes down to like having that discipline. Like, are you able to push yourself to these limits? Because there are extreme limits in med school, right? There are extreme limits in undergrad even sometimes in certain situations. Not even med school, like. Men's school is like the yeah. iceberg. Like, I mean, just look at how much, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it tries you emotionally. It tries you physically. It tests your, you know, the imposter system kicks in. Like, it tests, like, how confident you are in yourself, how much you believe in yourself. So I think, like, it's really important for you to have the motivation and the discipline necessary to keep pushing yourself through. Yeah, because if you're not work, someone that yeah. can, like, is going to be okay with people talking down to you all the time, yeah, <laughs> then you're probably not going to make it. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think people skills are really important to be a great doctor. Do I think yeah. it's necessary to become a doctor? No, because I see doctors that don't have great people skills, right? But I think in order to be a doctor, because... You know, at the end of the day, I think most of us want to be doctors because we want to be something bigger than ourselves, right? We want to help people. Um, so I think having the people skills is really important in that journey because how are you going to help someone when they're at their most vulnerable? 
or maybe at their lowest point in their life, if you're not able to connect to them and talk to them and be able to comfort them and guide them through what to expect, you know? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, like I remember last one, last podcast when I was thinking about like the podcast driving home, I remember I contradicted myself because I said anyone can be a doctor. And then I also said, if doc- being a doctor were easy, then everybody would do it. Mm-hmm. I said, so like, those are both contradicting, but I feel like in statements, but I feel like, um, like how I was telling you earlier, like this is the system of how it is. But I like what you said about if you're in a good environment. And that's what I was referring to when I said anyone can be a doctor, because I, I never had this idea of wanting to be a doctor. Um, me either. And, t- <laughs> and yours is a lot more later on, but, but for me, like, uh, and after high school and high school, when I was transitioning to go to, from high school to college, I didn't even know I wanted to go to college. And it was my football coach who told me you should be a physical therapist. Like, you know, this, these kind of you have certain attributes that I feel like would fit well with that because you love, you know, the medical field. You love science. You like the human body. And you, you know, you also, you know, like to help people. And I think that'd be perfect for you. So that's what I did. I followed his direction. I guess going off of that. Let's talk about imposter syndrome Mm. because like we've been talking about like professors and and like shitty professors and stuff. And like, I feel like I've just noticed it so much more that I'm just like, I feel so out of place, Mm. not only because I'm like not not pre-vet until or I was pre-vet. I'm not pre-vet until now. Like that just is like making it 100% worse but like even like getting into the master's program probably because of COVID like nobody applied and like that's why they let me in dang yeah that's that's heavy and I remember like feeling the same way because we were accepted like at the very last kind of seconds yeah yeah you literally were like the last one (laughs) I was like (laughs) yeah and I had applied to the master's program like in in the process of studying for the medical or studying for the MCAT. Mm-hmm. And um, they had already passed, like, I submitted on the 29th and the deadline was the 30th. And it was already almost September because we started in September, right? September or something like that? Sure, August. August. Started in August? Oh, okay. Well, well, yeah, well, we started in like Look at you, now August. you're president. <laughs> yeah, look at that. What did come up? Yeah, it was crazy because it was this, it was the Friday before school started. Yeah. And like, um, I got a, the email saying I was. Oh, you were accepted. after me. Yeah, so after, so I was the last one. You were the last I was one, the yeah. last. The team. Last in the cohort, first in our heart. Like, I feel like it's like all the people in college that were like pre-health, but were like normal and not like neurotic and psychotic <laughs> are like in our cohort. And then all those neurotic people got into med school. We don't have to deal with them. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> How are you feeling now? Because like for me, I still very much feel like, oh, like I shouldn't be here. Did that knowing that you got accepted super late, like did that make you feel any type of way? Or are you just kind of like, it is what it is? Mm, yeah, that's, that's tough. Like, because like, well, when I was first accepted, like, I just felt out of it. Like, I felt out of it. I felt like um, like a needy guy, like, trying to reach out for people, like, for help. And, I don't like, remember not trying you, to be like, like, that. like, that at all. I'm happy you brought that up. And I'm happy you feel more comfortable asking questions, too. Thank you. Thank you. And that, that's, that's the big thing that I want to talk That Thank you for, like, bringing that yeah. in. Because, like, there's this Spanish word, um, vergüenza, you know, like, yeah. ten vergüenza. Like, you know, be be shameful that's yeah. what my mom would tell me mm-hmm. like she would tell me be shameful yeah and like not not till i think about it now like like why mom like i understand like thanks to my mom like i do have respect yeah. i do have respect for everywhere like you know i i hope i do i hope people see me and see me as a respectful person mm-hmm. but she went uh a step further and mm-hmm. said be shameful yeah have shame like you know do you not have that's any such shame a Catholic thing to say yeah, yeah so, <laughs> and my mom's super catholic like you know and, very catholic thing <laughs> yeah and like uh with the whole like um imposter okay. syndrome yeah no like imposter syndrome my life like imposter syndrome my life <laughs> so, my like, life and like how i was telling alexa when we first met when we got coffee like i wanted to talk to her about how she feels being latina growing up because for me being a latino growing up uh you know being mexican but looking white you know like mm-hmm. I would, that's part of my, my I'm note. sure you can relate it's like mm. 
you're not enough of one or the other, mm-hmm. you know, like for you, like maybe like when you go to India, you don't oh, yeah. feel Indian enough, but here you're not white. Oh yeah. So yeah, it's like, yeah. you're caught in the middle somewhere. It's like for us, when I go to Colombia, I'm like the American girl, even though like, I like I learned Spanish at the same time as English. I mm. when I speak Spanish, I don't sound American. Yeah. And then here, growing up, I was never white enough for my friends. Mm. So it's like that. Like I guess yeah. Like we have imposter syndrome just from that. Like growing up, like ingrained in us. I think you put it really well. Like you know, you you don't feel like one or the other. And for me, like the whole I like you know my perception. Like you know being a, a lighter complected like. It was my whole identity, what my nickname was, Wereje, like, mm-hmm. uh, Wero, like, you know, that was, that's what people refer to me as. And sometimes it would be in a derogatory term, like, you know, sometimes it can. Um, but I also wanted to speak on, like, it, it, it there's privileges that come with being lighter complected. Yeah, I'm so 100%. happy you said that too. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's sad though. It's such yeah. a sad thing. And, yeah. and my family, like, how they see me and they see my little brother. Mm-hmm. Or as Moreno, you know, they even say, oh, he's Negro or like they'll call him Negro as like a, as a nickname, my little brother, just because he's darker complected because my mom is lighter complected, my dad's darker complected. And, um, and they always saw me and they're like, oh, he's a good boy. Like, mm-hmm. how, why am I a good boy? Like, just because mm-hmm. of how I look, just because of yeah. how I am. And I was telling you, like, so I, uh, you know, people would tell me so, so much that, that I felt like I played into that role too. Yeah. Even though, like, not until I was older did I start to see, like, you know, am I really a good boy? Am I just a good boy? Because people tell me I'm a good boy. Mm-hmm. And, like... Blue has the same. How does that play into, like, now, like, you've applied to med school, you took the MCAT, like, you know, in the whole med school application process, because, like, I went through, like, that with, like, vet school of, like, actually having to apply, take the GRE, do interviews, and just feeling like I knew in my head that mm-hmm. I'd done quite literally everything possible to prepare and then still feeling like, oh, like, do I actually belong here? Or, like, mm-hmm. oh, like, are they just going to look at my application and laugh? Because, like, that's why I told you, like, that's why I'm doing this master's program is, like, because I feel like if I had sent in an application to med school without a master's program, they would have just laughed at me. Or, like, in my head, that's, like, what I think. Mm. Yeah, and I guess for me, like, to address that, like, okay, my performance, based on my performance now, I don't feel like I can say, look, my performance in master's program, this is good enough to say I'm good enough for medical school. Like, and I, I feel like my study habits and, like, how I'm performing and how I, I was never really taught how to study. I had to like mm-hmm. pick it up on my own and like, you know, my performances aren't terrible, but I still feel like I'm not doing good enough. I'm not good enough. Yeah. And I don't know. I want to be able to get to that point of I'm not, I'm good enough. Mm-hmm. But like how Are you, how you said, like, like how yeah. you said earlier, like um, what you said about, um, you know, having applied to Davis vet school and like, you're just saying like, like what? When will it be enough? Or oh, four point oh? I'm talking about four point oh, right? Yeah. Like what is good enough? Like yeah. what is like? I there's so much that you know that I can also do with my family. I'm pouring so yeah. much into this, but also, and I always feel like a tug of war. Yeah. I always feel a tug of war between uh, all the responsibilities that I had to do, and like it makes you think like, am I? meant for this like you know are my values are all doctors just like disassociated from their families or don't care about their families like like i'm sure that's not the case right yeah which it's not yeah Mm -hmm. and i think i think just like um the good thing is like i think the heart well there's a the thing with imposter syndrome it's hard not to compare yourself to everyone else Mm -hmm. and i feel like for me like in the beginning of the master's program i did a lot of that i did a lot of comparing myself to someone else to how they were doing and i was like dang like look at their schedule look at like you know look how everything organized oh gosh, yeah. and like and then like hearing like everyone who went to because i went to fresno pacific and mm-hmm. like i didn't apply i only prior to fresno state and fresno pacific and and community college and like hearing people who like you know you went to uc davis and like your major and stuff like for me i'm just like dang you know like i'm i'm with boss like you know people over here like doing big big boss moves over here like um 
And it's like we all feel that way about yeah. each other. Yeah. Yeah. No, if you asked me, I would think you two are so amazing, right? And I would never think anything less of you. But if you ask yourself, all of a sudden you're your worst critic and you're like, I'm good for nothing. Mm-hmm. And so like the imposter syndrome really makes you forget all your wins, all your accomplishments, mm-hmm. right? I feel like... It's a culmination of many things, right? You said you're a first-generation student. Uh, You're also a person of color, right? So when you go into these spaces where you don't see a lot of your family members who have gone down this road, Mm. you don't see friends that have gone down this road, you said that there were people who just graduated high school, or maybe there were people who didn't graduate high school, and that's where they stopped. They didn't go to college, right? When you see a lot of this happening around you and you decide to take this road that may be novel to you and inserting yourself into that situation it makes you question like like you don't see anyone else that looks like you doing it and you're like wow like am i really supposed to be here but the fact that you even made it there is like the amazing part right the fact that you made it out of there the fact that you chose to go to college the fact that you did all of these things to get into this master's program imposter syndrome takes away these wins from us because we're constantly comparing ourselves I know I like do that a lot too. I remember after our first biochem quiz, that was rough. That was so rough. And <laughs> but I remember in the group chat, it was like, oh yeah, that wasn't that bad. And I was like, what do you for the first biochem quiz? And I remember reading that message and I'm looking at my score and I remember how much I struggled. I, I just assumed that everybody else had done well and maybe there's just something that like I didn't study hard enough or maybe I'm just stupid and I didn't understand the material. And I literally spent the whole evening not doing anything because I was so upset with myself. Right. Mm -hmm. I was like, am I really going to do this whole master's program? Like, am I really cut out to do this? Because, I mean, I'm already failing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, Why are you doing it? Because we've already talked about like our reasons. But like, why did you decide? My undergrad GPA. It's not competitive. Uh, My dad was homeless for a good chunk of my undergrad. Mm -hmm. And my mom and my dad are divorced. uh, So there's not a lot of contact between them. And so we're my only family here in America. Everyone else is in India. I feel that that's how we are. Yeah. And my my dad, well, my dad lives with us, but my parents are separated. And my dad is drinking. Yeah. Drinking problems are big. Yeah. Yeah. And it affects you a lot when you live in Davis and you're worried about Mm -hmm. your dad. Yeah, when you get that call from the hospital and they're like, your dad's in the hospital and there's nobody there to see him. And now all of a sudden you have to pack up and drive three hours to figure out what's going on with your dad. Yeah, yeah, it's it's scary, you know, and then like getting a call from your dad and finding out he's sleeping on a park bench somewhere and you're just like, what the hell? And so, sorry, excuse my language. Um, (laughs) We Yeah, Yeah, but, you know, so a lot of my undergrad, I didn't want to be a burden on my mom because I knew that going to college was already going to be a lot on us. Mm -hmm. We were already in debt by like a lot. At that point, we'd already filed for bankruptcy, right? And um, I just... I didn't want to rely on anyone for help and I didn't want to take up loans because I knew that they would have to go under my mom's name or like, or essentially like my mom would feel obligated to help me out. Cause you know, in Brown families and like, oh I, it's, there's a lot of parallels. When right? I told my mom yeah. that I didn't want to go to vet school because it was too expensive. She's like, I'll take out loans for you. I'm exactly. like, you're insane. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, you're insane. Yeah. Like I could tell my mom no, but I know that she is going to do everything that she can hmm. to make sure that I have what I need to go to school. Right. And so I took it upon myself and I started working two jobs and didn't have time management skills because I just going from high school to a four year university at the level of Davis, I wasn't prepared. Like I didn't have the skills I needed to know how to study. Like I didn't know how to study, right? I remember freshman year chemistry. I was like, oh, this is what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. And I'm, I'd be yeah. like, you know, I'd be sitting in these these lecture halls. We had like 500 people in them, right? And I, I hear people talking about like, oh yeah, we cover this stuff in AP Bio. We cover this stuff in AP Chem. And I've never seen these things in my life, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't even have AP yet. Bio, AP Chem we in my high not. school, right? We did not. Yeah. I took AP Calc and I was like, 
I was like, oh, I took AP yeah, Calc. Yeah, AP Calc is the extent. I took Calc at Davis, mm-hmm. and I hadn't seen it since high school, uh-huh. and I barely studied. Yeah. And I got it. I got an A because, and I emailed my high school Calc professor, and I was like, hey, just so you know, like, yeah. whatever you're doing is working. <laughs> but I'm so glad you brought that up because that brings up this really important point. Like, you have this amazing teacher that prepared you with the skills you needed in order to succeed at the college level. AP mm-hmm. Calc. When I got to Calc in college, I was like, I got it down, right? My teacher was amazing. Like, I got it down. But other than that, I only had, like, like regular level, like, chemistry, biology courses. AP environmental science, I took it just because it was an AP class I could take. And I got my hands on whatever I could take, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, I'm sitting in these, these courses, like, this 500-person lecture hall, and these people are talking about, oh, that yeah, that wasn't that bad. Like, I remember this from high school. I remember this. And then we go into chem labs and it's the same thing. Like people remember doing these experiments in, in high school and I, I don't remember any of it. And I'm just like, dang, like, mm-hmm. what have y'all been exposed to? Right? <laughs> like, where are people just pick it up so fast? But yeah, you know, um, my first quarter, I didn't do well because I didn't have the skills I needed to know how to study, to know how to manage my time. That itself discouraged me because I felt like I was doing everything that I could to perform well in my classes and it wasn't. And I was like, maybe I'm not good enough. I almost dropped out of college like three times. There were like three distinct times. I called my mom crying and I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. First generation student. Nobody in my family has earned a college degree, right? My mom, most of my, my mom and all her siblings were married off between the ages of 14 and 16. So some of them didn't even get through high school. Most of them didn't get through high school. So it was just this constant battle of like, feeling like I'm doing my best and feeling like it's not good enough. And so my grades weren't always the best. And then on top of that, I'm working two jobs, trying to uh, provide for my own like tuition and living expenses as well as my dad's. And so my undergrad GPA was poor. It was like 3.1, right? And so after that, I graduated, which I didn't give myself credit for when I graduated. I remember thinking like, oh, but everybody graduates. Like, it's not that big of a deal. And I look back at that now and it was a very insensitive thing to say because, you know, not everyone gets that privilege to go to college and gets to, gets to graduate. Not everyone makes it out of it. I don't think I've ever thought about the fact that I graduated. Yeah. We take it for granted, right? Like, I don't care if you went to community college. I don't care if you went to a state school. I don't care if you went to university or an Ivy League, like whatever it is, you made it through college and you have a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. Like how many people wish they could have said that, right? Yeah. And that's like, like, yeah, it's like an imposter syndrome thing and like an immigrant family thing where like, you don't give yourself credit for anything mm-hmm. like yeah like you say like graduate and then i think like oh like i had a full ride but i never really think about that mm. at all yeah. and then that's huge like mm. yeah and the fact that like i like when i when i was transferring out of nebraska like i i was clinically depressed like mm-hmm. i was going through it mm-hmm. and like that on top of all my family problems and like yeah and like the fact that like I never let my grades drop because like we're so ingrained to like prioritize that Mm. whereas like I literally was like between like okay I could either take a gap year and then transfer to Davis I like I didn't even let myself do that Mm. like I forced myself to go back to Nebraska which like do I regret regret it I don't know (laughs) but like that semester I got severe social anxiety which like you know me now and you're like that's not me you know like I'm, I don't have social anxiety but like I got to the point where I was like paranoid that everyone like knew something about me yeah mm. I would skip meals because I couldn't go to the dining hall mm. couldn't be around that many people like mm. the extent to which we go to like one day present ourselves to this like application cycle mm. for them to like deem whether or not all of that was worth anything is like insane it invalidates you it invalidates the struggles and the experiences you've been through and it's so hard because you know they say yeah we provide the personal statement for you to be able to tell your story but how much of your story can you really tell in like what 1500 words right yeah if i were to tell you all the stuff that i've been through to get to this point you would be like oh it's a pity party yeah But not just that, like, you know, you talked about being clinically depressed, right? 
And, you know, that's, you overcame that, right? That's a big, big win for you. But if you were to talk about that in your application, they might red flag it and say like, oh, like, what if she doesn't have the emotional capacity to handle medical school? And it's just like, it's all of these factors that play against all these kids. I feel like we're all dealing with traumas, right? All of us Mm -hmm. have some kind of internalized trauma. And so it just invalidates that human experience. Like they expect us, it's like almost violent because they expect us to be these perfect beings and there's no such thing. But then then you still need a story. You still need a story. You can't be too boring. You can't be too boring. You can't be emotionally unstable because of everything that's gone down in your life. Mm -hmm. You have to be well presented and well put together, but you're not going to have the skills that are provided to you because those are hard to come by unless you have the right person in your life Mm -hmm. guiding you. So it's just like all of these odds stack up against you, you know, especially like as children of immigrants, as people of color, first generation students. I read this statistic the other day and it said only 9% of first generation um, students go on to get their bachelor's degrees in the United States. 9%. You know what I mean? And it's like, so we got the imposter syndrome working against them. We got finances working against these kids. We got the lack of like structural support, right? Institutions working against them. Like institutions will say, yeah, we support mental health and we want to bring more people of color or more immigrants or more first-generation students into our facilities and we provide x y and z to support them right but then you get there and like you like look at counseling and davis like there were wait times for counseling right and then on top of that you know they say like oh we want our mission is to bring more first-generation students more people of color increased representation huzzah right like that's like the big trend for schools right now right but once these children, like, sorry, once these students get into schools, what tools are you providing to them to ensure that they are at the same level playing field as people who have had more privilege or more resources yeah. to provide them with the study skills, to provide them with the life skills that they need to succeed, right? That's just, I don't know. Anyways, I detract. <laughs> um, was, I graduated. My GPA wasn't that great. Um, I knew that I needed a postdoc. Or I graduated in 2018. Oh, same. Nice. Wait. Oh, my gosh. That's exciting. Okay. So I, <laughs> I graduated in 2018. Um and I knew I needed a post-bac or master's program to get me to the next step. I just knew, like, for my GPA, like, I needed to remedify it, right? Um, but I didn't think I was good enough to get into a post-bac or master's program, even though the point of that program is to help me get into med school. I was like, I don't think I'm good enough to get into that program either. And so I started taking classes online, kind of just doing, like, my DIY post-bac kind of thing. I also yeah, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah, but I worked a lot, so I covered my expenses. And then... Um, but then I also heard, like, some pre-med advisor once said, like, basically, if you're doing, like, a DIY post and you're not taking, like, full-time classes, then med schools, like, don't care. And I was like, that's awesome. Thank you so much. You know that. what? I don't care. I know. I don't, I don't care. care. I took med two schools don't appreciate care. anything. So, like, yeah. what am I even trying for? You know what? Like, Esteban said earlier, like, you will end up where you're meant to be. I strongly agree with that. If they don't recognize the effort that I put in, like, everything that I've been through, all the hoops I've had to jump through just yeah. to get there, then I don't want to be there. For real. Um, so, I was taking two classes at a time, working insane hours, volunteering, just applying myself however I could because you know, in college. You talk, you talk about anything that you're doing, and I'm just like, oh, oh really? I do, <laughs> I do nothing. No, don't do that to yourself. See, the thing is, like, I felt like I was so behind. I was like, how do I expect myself to get into med school when all these people are doing these amazing things, right? Like, people were scribes for like three, four years, or people started a nonprofit, or people volunteered here and there but like I was working to maintain my living costs and be in school and so like how do you find time to do other things right and I remember like in college specifically there was this moment scribe jobs are really hard to come by in Davis because they went like this right so there was this one moment I'd been applying to be a scribe like five times and I finally got an interview and it was this place called Novato right Mm -hmm hour and a half to two hour drive away and I was like you know what I'm gonna take it because this is the only way I'm gonna get clinical experience mm-hmm. right and I remember doing that for two months and I couldn't do it anymore because it was just too much and so I felt so defeated because I was like I had a chance to get 
a clinical job and I couldn't stick to it. But honestly, like after after graduation, I moved back to Bakersfield and I was feeling a lot of these feelings that you you both described, like, you know, like how can I be good enough to apply to medical school? Like, how do I make myself stand out? Like, what do I even have to offer? Right. Um, and I was really lucky because I didn't think that Bakersfield could open so many doors for me, but it really did. Um, I found people who who recognized my journey, who were on my side and um, I made things happen, you know. And so um, I got clinical experiences. I got volunteer experiences. I was doing my two classes per quarter to kind of show like that now I had the time management skills I needed, right? Like before I didn't have them, but, you know, now I'm handling X, Y, and Z while also doing while I'm getting A's in school. Um, but I knew that still like that wasn't going to be enough, right? I, I, and you'll notice this is like a recurring thing. Like it's never enough, right? And so um, I knew that I still had to apply to like a formal postback or master's program. And I started applying um, in February, and yeah, so I'm, I'm happy that you both brought up that you didn't think that you like, you know, you that imposter syndrome, like that voice in your head was telling you like, oh, like maybe we were just like the last picks. Right. I'm happy you brought that up because I had a different experience. I applied so early. I was like, what if they just didn't have anyone to compare me to? And they just let me in because of that. Like, what if I'm really not meant yeah, to be here? We- it's crazy, like, what we come up with in our <laughs> right? head. Like, yeah. Because, like, like, I told myself that. I'm like, oh, they didn't have enough people. But then Dr. Like, our our program advisor is like, oh, we have, we took on more people than we usually do. And so now yeah. I'm like, okay, well, that my story doesn't make sense anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like, you, they made a spot for you. They did. <laughs> They decided, (laughs) no, but seriously, like you guys have to, you, you both have to realize like they only had a certain number of spots, right? And they went up like that many more spots to include y'all in the program because they knew that you were people that this would make this program proud, right? Mm -hmm. Who would use this program to get to the next step, right? Mm Because the other day, Dr. F told me that I have a good GPA and I was like, (laughs) <laughs> that's like the nicest thing anyone ever told me <laughs> like I've been waiting to hear this my whole life yeah I'm like yeah I remember one time my academic advisor told me, at Davis told me that and I was like oh my gosh but that's because at that point I had a 3.5 which we all know did not last dude I had so many professors at Davis tell me like you need to quit trying to be pre-med because it's not going to work out for you people told you that? people told me that but yeah, um, I applied way back in February, and I ended up only applying to two postback programs, and they were the UCs. And I remember, you know, on Student Doctorate Network, when you can like monitor where people are hearing that. Did and you I was to the UCI like underrepresented, whatever thing. No, I only applied to UC Davis and UCSF. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I applied to that one. And I didn't yeah, I applied to both because my boyfriend he's in San Francisco. So we've been long distancing it for a while. And I was like, oh, it would be nice if I could move up closer. Um, And I love UC Davis. So I was like, this would be great. Um, They don't love me as much. (laughs) um, I feel feel the same. Yeah. (laughs) Literally, but with UC Davis and UCSF, like the, I I would be on SDN five times a day, refreshing. It was really toxic. It was toxic. I know, seriously. (laughs) I went on there one time and I was like, this sucks. Yeah. It It goes back to like that really toxic, almost violent, like expectations that schools have set. Like, you know, the pre med. Pre-med culture is like known to have its stereotypes for a reason, right? Like it's it's been instilled by the institutions and their expectations of people. And rather than facilitating people going into medicine who would be good for medicine, it's so over competitive and the expectations are insane. And despite despite accepting people that they think that are gonna be great. Despite, you know, accepting more people every year, we still have this insane shortage of physicians. Mm-hmm. We don't have enough physicians working under in underserved areas. Mm-hmm. And like it, it's insane to me because, you know, they always talk about like we need more physicians in underserved areas. And you have all these people like Central Valley or any other underserved area going and wanting to go down this path of medical school. But it's it's hard. Like it's That's such a privilege. Expensive. 
it honestly pursuing medical school is a privilege like all that time all that money mm-hmm. like it all cost that, me yeah to apply to vet school i only applied to i think like five mm-hmm. it cost me two thousand dollars yeah. And that's not even with like me. I didn't get any interviews. I got I oh I got one mm-hmm. and I got in. But I didn't have any out of state interviews. Like could you imagine if I had to fly to four out of state interviews? That would have like tripled the price. And like I had a friend, he's in med school in Buffalo and he is like crazy. I think he applied to 12 med schools and with interviews and applications and everything, it cost him ten thousand dollars to apply. Mm-hmm. Most people don't have ten thousand dollars just to shell out. Mm-hmm. to get rejected i think it uh, it's hard because you know it's it's funny that you mentioned that you would never do that and i already have like 20 schools <laughs> that i want to apply to and part of it is you know goes back to that like i need to spread my net wide because what if i don't get in you know like what if i'm still not good enough like maybe I, yeah. if i apply to more schools somebody will notice me right i think that After the whole vet school thing, and especially after the whole Nebraska thing, I know myself enough to know that I'm not going to do well at any school where I don't have a good fit Mm -hmm. and where I don't like the area. People are just like, they think like that, you know, where it's like, oh, just cast my net wide. And it's because you don't value yourself. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, you're worth so much more than that. And then people don't think like that place is where you have to live for four years and possibly more. Like if you end up there for residency, like my friend went to Buffalo and he hates the cold Mm -hmm. and like has wanted to come back to California. And now because of COVID, all of their out of state rotations got screwed and he's basically going to be stuck there for residency, which is insane. So like, I, I just know myself well enough to like, I, I just know that there's so many parts of the country where I just wouldn't do well, mm-hmm. where I'm like, it's just not, it's not worth getting into med school a year earlier, yeah. you know? Yeah. And like, they talk about fit too. And I think that that's really important because like, if the school can tell that you guys are like well fit for each other, mm-hmm. then like, that's super important. And I think that they will value that, you know? Mm-hmm. So with them, um- you like having like the masters like from a regular masters mm-hmm. right um can you talk a little bit about why you chose we're special masters right you said like we're considered Essentially, special masters. Yeah. yeah so with those because i know alexis explained to me like what made you choose between the options that you had no yeah my first applications that i sent out were to the ucs or the two ucs i applied to but i went down the same train of thought i started thinking about it and i was like well, if I'm paying about the same as I am for a post back versus a master's, like if I can't get into medical school the next year, then the master's can get me a job, yeah. right? Um, and there are good job outlooks for master's students too. And so that was like one thing I was like, oh, like I can use the income from that to help pay off my debt from school as well as student loans, uh, sorry, debt from school, as well as the money I'm going to spend on applications, right? With a postback, I might not have that kind of income available. Um, so I knew that I wanted to start leaning towards master's programs, and that's why I didn't apply to anything other than the two UCs. Because I knew that for me, I was just like, the only two postback programs that might, might maybe be worth it for me would be the UC programs because they have a demonstrated success rate. Um, other than that, I knew I wanted to apply to special master's programs. I only applied to special master programs specifically. The reason why I picked this program um, specifically, it came down to one being near my family because uh, my dad recently passed away and my grandma, she's been having like a lot of health problems and it's okay. That's okay. Um, so I knew that I wanted to be close by because I knew like when my dad passed away, I wasn't close by. And that ate away at me. And um, since I've been home, you know, it's been a lot of like taking my grandma to her doctor's appointments, getting her medications. She has like routine shots she needs. So taking her for those. Being there for my brother, he this is his first year of high school. And um, I was sharing this with Anne the other day. Um, my brother has been in special education his whole life. And then this year was the first year that he's transitioned into general education. So it's a big year for him. 
Um, but he's been struggling, especially with online learning, because um, usually when he's in class, he has like a learning assistant helping him. Um, so it's been nice to be home and kind of be there for my brother. And like he I'm learning with him just as much as I'm learning by myself. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so family was a big factor. And then also I didn't want to pay out of state tuition. Mm-hmm. Um, Boston University, that was like my I was between Boston University and um, this program. And, and that program, I think was like 55,000 per year and it's a two year program. So I was just like, you know what, I have to be practical here. Like, and I knew that if I go to this university, the program that we're in right now, like if I work as hard as I can and I produce some kind of results to show that I've improved from undergrad and now I have all this experience under my belt from like the last year of working, right? Um, then that should be enough to get me in somewhere. Like I don't not have I don't have to shell out 100k just to prove that I'm worth it. You know? Yeah. No, I feel you about like I my brother's in high school too, Mm -hmm. and obviously like I I don't have to help him like learn or anything. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize like how big of a thing that would be. Like because my mom's gone a lot because she works up north, so she's gone a lot. My dad isn't you know and so yeah like being here for my brother has been like such a huge thing Mm -hmm. and um as much as I don't like living in Visalia it really does keep me here because I'm just like he he doesn't have normal parents you know he doesn't have you know that kind of structure and so if I can be here to like be like hey how's school going or like hey like let's go like get dinner or, you know, be home by this time. Cause he's a great kid, but it's just when I was in college, I was never like a homebody, but like, I don't know, I guess you just grow up and you're like, oh, I actually don't want to live thousands of miles away from my family. No, you know? Seriously, yeah. And I think I think like as an older sibling, I feel this responsibility, you know, I had to struggle to figure out how to get to college, how to get to where I am. Like, you know, we were talking about this earlier, like you didn't have anyone to rely on, right? You only had yourself to rely on. And so being this older sibling, I feel this kind of responsibility for being there for my brother. Um, So it isn't as hard for him, right? Like you don't want them to go through the same things you did. Like if you can create a path that's easier for them or help make it easier in some way, then by all means, like I'm right there. Um, So I think that played a big role too. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like when I was choosing between like my two options is either here or Regis in Denver. Mm-hmm. I was like flip-flopping so much. I was like, honestly, I feel like it wouldn't even matter. But like now that I chose this program, like I'm so glad. Mm-hmm. Like, it, I mean, you know, God puts you where he wants you. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's so crazy how like he, go- God goes before me in all of my steps and he, he like prepared this for me. Mm-hmm. And I I'm always just stupid and thinking that you know I can make any sort of decision for myself because you know I'm just gonna end up where he wants me anyway yeah my mom says this thing that all you can do is work hard and leave the rest to God and what's meant to work out will work out Mm -hmm. even if it's not clear to you at the time that it happens like if one door closes you may not know why it closed but eventually you'll find out that it was better for you yeah yeah Yeah, like us not getting into the ac program yeah like i'm glad yeah for sure and and i was i think i was telling you like me not getting into davis vet school like if i had gone into davis vet school i probably would have gone and you know i wouldn't i wouldn't be here and like i wouldn't be being obedient to the calling that i think that god has on my life to like Mm -hmm. go into medicine and Cause like I I've talked to Esteban about this where like we both feel kind of we're not in medicine because we're like oh like I want to be a doctor since I was like little and like I want to you know like we feel like it's more of like a calling to like serve others and like am I crazy about medicine am I crazy about like being a doctor like not in the sense that I saw when I was in college you know mm-hmm. like you see people who are like all about it like that's like their whole life and like that's Mm -hmm. that's not the way I feel about it but like I do feel called to it Mm -hmm. you know yeah and I think just like from the beginning like learning the history of medicine like how it was in the beginning it was all like people who were just like doing it out of 
you know, their own, like without getting payment, just like voluntarily. And I, I think for me, like that's what I really, when I learned that in the beginning, like that's how medicine was. I was like, wow, like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I know that I will, that those are the same reasons why I want to for sure. Cause like, I think there is such just like a, a component to like, you know, how that helps. I know like we shouldn't say that we want to be a doctor to help others. Like it's like, everyone says that, yeah. but like, that's what I want to do for. Like it's I want to help the others. Reasons. Yeah. And you know, just because it's a common reason doesn't mean that it can't be one of your reasons. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think like, well, uh, I want to also just say to you, like, thank you so much for sharing what you shared, you know, because I mean, that's, that's heavy stuff. It's so incredible that we're all willing to uplift each other to help us reach our goals, right? Because it's not me versus you. Like, we're all rooting for each other. Yeah. yeah, I know, for sure. Yeah. It's, yeah, very, like, counterculture to typical, like, pre-med. Mm-hmm. And, and not only that, it's like, you know, you have to you have to be the kind of doctor that you want to be yeah. before you even get into med school. Because you can't say, you know, like, oh, once I get in or once I'm a doctor, I'm going to be this kind of person. It's like, mm-hmm. I've talked to you about this where I'm like, once I decided like, okay, I'm going to go into medicine. I was like, I need to start working on myself now. Like if I see myself and I think, you know, you when you can be impatient you can be condescending you can be all these things like i need to call that out on myself now because i i can't i can't say oh i want to be this kind of doctor and not do the work now and it just expect it to happen and so like the fact that you know we're we're like walking the walk and not just saying oh i want to be this kind of doctor and help people and help my community Mm -hmm. and then not you know walking that out yeah 100%. yeah because at that point you're just telling people what they want to hear yeah right it's about staying true to yourself and showing that you have honest intentions about this yeah 100%. yeah i agree like can you talk about like your experience like working in the healthcare field like i mean yeah you're involved in so much and like for as far as what you've been able to see in the Central Valley, because I think we can't like leave this room and not talk about it because we're all here, right? And yeah. that's like, yeah. we were able to meet because, you know. Um, so, oh my gosh, there's, I don't even know where to start about healthcare in Central Valley. Mm-hmm. So I work as a medical assistant, right? And I cannot tell you like how frustrated I am with the way things work. One, primary care doctors, like, wait times are insane, like, ridiculous. Some of my patients are waiting two months to see their primary care physician. Mm -hmm. And then you ask, like, why don't you go see your primary care physician? Or why don't you go follow up with your primary care physician? Or why don't you trust for your primary care physician to take care of you? Because they're overwhelmed. They don't have time to see you, right? And so there's a shift of, like, relying on, um, like, urgent cares, emergency departments, where these patients to go to because they can't get into their primary care providers, right? And then I see like, and this part frustrates me the most, knowing the situation, knowing how overwhelmed our primary care systems are, some of these providers who are emergency department, um, like NPs, PAs, doctors, and like even in my urgent care, right? I see it in both settings. Like they get frustrated when they see patients coming back to the the emergency setting for like the same thing happening. And they're like, I told you to follow up with your primary care physician. And then that frustrates me so much because this patient is already frustrated because they can't get into their primary care physician. They go to the only spot where they feel like they can get the help they need. And the person providing them that help is frustrated with them coming back. Like, you know, like just imagine yeah, how would they make you feel, right? <laughs> yeah. Frustrated. Yeah, it's yeah. it's awful. It's and it's hard because you want to like point the finger somewhere, but it's like where, you yeah. know, it's. And so like if the person who's taking care of you is making you feel bad for being there or is making you feel like your needs aren't being met, not even like willing to like maybe figure out the time, take that out the time, just take your phone out and use Google Translate to be able to communicate with you. It makes you feel like poop. And it's hard. I On the other hand, it's yeah. really hard to, to put in that effort as a mm-hmm. provider when you're like i have 39 that's the thing yeah and th- there needs to be more like structural support yeah. and you know it's not just our providers they're getting burnt out i totally get that like it's way too much for 
three or four providers to see up to 250 patients in one day. Like I don't even stay for a full 12 hour shift like they do. I stay for like eight hours in that role and I'm exhausted, right? By talking to all the patients and seeing them and getting them to their rooms and everything. And the fact that they have to make decisions about their well-being or like go back and like remember like I really hope I made the right decision about this patient um, or I really hope that I didn't miss anything. Like it's it's burning our providers out, which is affecting the level of care provided to our patients, which is already so spread thin. Like we need more like institutional and structural support mm. to increase the healthcare services that are available to increase the number of people providing like culturally competent healthcare to our people. It's just a lot that needs to happen. And it's hard because there's so much, right? It's awesome to meet people who like realize that ag is not the only thing that's going on in the Central Valley. Hearing you is just like, you know, it's awesome just to hear that, you know, you, you realize like, well, like, all the things in Bakersfield that are going on and like, you know, you're aware of that consciousness. And I also wanted to, you know, you know, support that as well. And I think, you know, a lot of people do forget the Central Valley. Like, you know, they do forget about it. And there's uh, people here that are like well into their 60s, 70s, even 80s out picking fruit, picking mm-hmm. vegetables in fires in the worst air quality mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah who are uninsured, who are undocumented, who don't feel seen. And it's like, you know, for, you know, we're forgotten, but like more importantly, like they're forgotten. Yeah. And when I, I used to describe in, in Fresno in the, well, in the main hospital in Fresno, in the community hospital. And um, I remember one of the, for me, just like kind of like a full circle thing for me was seeing like um, a young kid. He was maybe my age, a little bit younger. He was definitely younger, but he wasn't in school or anything. And he had broken his leg and he had just like wrapping around it. Like, you know, but he was trying to go to places to where he could receive care to help him with his broken leg. Yeah. And nobody would take him because he has Medi-Cal. Yeah. Not only, not because he has papers, he's, he has legal status. It's not that he doesn't have health insurance. He has health insurance. He has Medi-Cal, but nobody wants to get financed for a Medi-Cal patient. Yeah. What? WTF? What? Seriously, WTF? Like, yeah. And then I was able to work, like you know, selling health insurance, and I started to realize even people who bought private insurance, the middle-class families, they were getting hit hard too mm-hmm. because. The premiums, the monthly premiums are going so high. They're insane. How how do you expect someone to be like, okay, I'm down for this amount, these hundred dollars to go down for health insurance that sometimes I don't even use? Okay, but what if something happens that you, you know, you do need it? It's still gonna be super tough. Yeah. Yeah, even and sometimes people can't don't understand that or like, you know, like the Central Valley is primarily conservative, you know, and in these communities, we have these kind of mindsets, these kind of scripts that we've been told not only about like, you know, typically when I talk about scripts, like, you know, about racism and like, you know, things like this, where we've been kind of like fed this kind of script about these people and and this culture or in this race, the same kind of goes also for healthcare and how we perceive medicine and healthcare providers, but also it's the system too that has this kind of setup to where like only if people who are making lots of money are affected by you know these these monthly premiums or having medical and not being able to receive care for higher um higher level uh, treatment mm-hmm. and people who go a step further to say these people they they're lazy yeah they're unemployed oh they're let's talk about that. they're like yeah. you know like they're just taking advantage of the system yeah like you know what else is going on in their lives you know you know what else what other things are going on mm-hmm. like like how could you say that and then you start working in the valley and you see like the divide mm-hmm. between like who has money and who doesn't and it's not just like oh upper class and lower class it's like people who literally have no one to advocate for them who have such a hard time getting insured 
who literally have to work in the field and into their 80s just to provide for their families. And then you have these people who literally don't ever even have to think about money. Yeah. It's generational. It is. Like their parents didn't have to think about it. They don't have to think about it. And you know that their kids don't have to think about it. And then they feel entitled to make comments Mm. about other groups. Mm -hmm. Like, and then being someone that has to like navigate my way through like those two worlds. Mm. uh, And it's, you know, people ask like, what radicalized you? And I'm like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) that. I feel like I see that trend happening a lot in brown families. Um, Like I'm speaking from like Punjabi families that I've seen that happening in. Like if someone's not working or someone's not doing this, it's the same thing. They're like, oh, they're so lazy. Like what are they doing with their lives? Why aren't they doing anything? They're not going to be successful. This is not. that. And I don't know what it is about like brown communities, but like everybody's always judging each other. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's always talking about each other. And we forget where we all started. Yeah. I see this trend of them internalizing their traumas and feeling like they have to bear the weight of those traumas on Mm. their own to protect other members of their family. Because God forbid your family finds out that you're struggling, right? Like they do all of these things just to make sure that we can have a better life. And they they feel so indebted to this country. Yeah. And... You know, there there is something to say, like, you you are grateful for, like, the opportunity to come to America and everything, but I don't know what it is about this idea that, you know, if you complain, that's, that's you being ungrateful, or that's you saying that you deserved more. Like, in their mind, it's yeah. like they are so scared to, you know, go against anything of this country or any opportunity because you know complaining about something here might be an affront not only to america but to family back home that didn't have the same privilege and so yeah definitely like i i feel like that's a big thing that Mm -hmm. causes a lot of communication barriers in immigrant families where it's like they're like they want to feed you the narrative of like, oh, we've just been hard workers from day one, like mm. from jump, like, and that's what you need to do too. Mm. And then once you like start to grow up and like you see your parents as people and not as like these like idols, you're like, oh, like this is the reality of it. Mm. Yeah. And like you start to have grace for them, but then it's so much harder to have grace for yourself. Yeah. I agree because then now you're holding yourself to the standard, right? You know, yeah. My parents did this for me. And so I have to be there for them by doing X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah. And you know, that's actually something that took me a lot of time to understand. Like I had all of these like internal conflicting feelings about my mom growing up, right? Mm. And I was like, why is she like this? Like, why is she this way? And it wasn't until like I started growing up and I started seeing the reality of things and started understanding like, you know, like she's been through all of this. Like this is all she's ever known. This was her life growing up. This was her world. And she's just acting the way that she was like the way her mom acted with her. You know what I mean? Like she didn't know anything beyond that. So I can't hold her responsible for some of the things she says or the reaction she has, you know? But, you know, what's nice is, like, after being here in the States for so long, I have noticed that she has learned some of the more severe behaviors that she was exhibiting. She makes honest efforts to, like, remedify them, you know? And so I think that itself is so big because I wouldn't even expect that from her given everything that she's been through. And so, you know, the fact that she even tries to put in that effort is amazing. And I think we all see that in our parents, right? Like they still, at the end of the day, no matter what, they're here for us and they try to be here for us, especially when they see we're struggling. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. And I think that something that I've just like really adopted in my life, like ever since Cause like when I was in high school, obviously being surrounded by like all these dairy families who mm-hmm. put up such like a perfect front and 
you know, whatever. I, the fact that like my dad had a drinking problem was like, I was like, no one can ever know because I thought that that would, that would lead people to have a judgment on me, you know? And like, I've just come so far from that and being like, one, like, why would that, why would that affect how people think about me? And if it does, like, that's their problem. Like, that's something that they need to deal with. And second of all, like, me not sharing, like, what I've gone through. Like, God has given me this testimony. God has, like, put me through the struggles. And, like, he says, like, in your struggles, like, rejoice. Like, when you're weak, I'm strong. And, like, if I'm not going to share what I've been through, then, like, one, it's worth nothing. And two, I don't want to be that kind of friend. I don't want to be that friend that's like there to encourage you and there to be with you in the good times. But then when things get ugly, I'm just like, oh, we don't talk about that. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to be there for the ugly for all of my friends. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't care how ugly it is. And I can't expect people to allow me that and like trust me in that if I don't share my ugly too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. That was well said. And that's love right there. That's love. Love, like like thinking about like love is this like lovey-dovey kind of thing like no love is like you know you accept that person for what they went through what they will go through everything that's love this was good yeah good talk 100 percent. i had a really great time thank you simran for joining us for being our first guest (laughs) thank you for having me (laughs) hopefully not the last time for sure you know (laughs) We'll have to listen to this in five years when we're. Yeah. Well, we listen to it like in a week, and I was just like, "Yeah, I wish I could talk to someone right now." Like, you, know, you, know, you, know. you can always call me. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm annoying already. I don't think you You're are. You're not good. annoying. Don't sell yourself short. You like are annoying, you guys, but I already know that. Yeah, and then imagine me times two or times three. You guys don't, don't want to get on the next it. level. I know you can't take it. I know people can't take it. I can take it, Esteban. <laughs> okay, we'll see. What I can see. take it. Call me when you go to LA and you're like, no problem. <laughs> Traffic is zero. I used to have Call so me. many imaginary oh friends. God. I used to, yeah, two butt That was crazy. I still talk to myself all the time. Oh, I yeah, myself too, Travis. In my car all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, in the yeah. car. For sure. I'd be like playing out scenarios like out loud. It's crazy. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we'll see you next time with more BS.